when I was a younger man, uh, my brother and I, young men, little kids, um, we loved, loved, loved to play baseball. Now, this, this is a softball bat, not a baseball bat, but we, we grew up playing ball. And because I, was, uh, because I was a little older than my brother, regularly in our backyard, like I'd, I'd teach him some of the stuff that I'd have the opportunity to learn. I'd show him a few things that, you know, being a few years older than him that I had learned that could help him be a better baseball player. And one particular day, we were in the backyard of the house that we grew up in. We actually lived with my grandmother at the time. And we're, we're in the backyard underneath this, this pecan tree that we had back there. And, and I'm showing him some stuff about his swing. I don't remember exactly what we were working on, but, but there, was, there was something in his, in his swing that was just off. And, and so I said, let me, let me show you. And so I'm, I'm walking him through like the whole thing, showing him the, the whole process. And I said, all right, now, now I'm going to show you what it looks like in, in, in full time, take a full swing. So back up. And he didn't. And so I took a full cut and on the follow through, managed to smack my brother square in the face with a metal baseball bat. Now, now when we were kids, um, there was a particular brand of bat that we were fond of called the bomb bat. If you were a little kid at the same time I was, you remember a bomb bat? They were, they were really thin metal and they had these really thin grips on the side. I want y'all to know how bad it hurt my hands to smack him in the face with a bat. So my, my hands were hurting and he's screaming so loud that my mom, that we don't have to go get mom. She hears the scream from inside of the house and comes running out to see what all the commotion is about. And, and just so I can kind of give you guys a picture into the, the horrible parenting that, that I had to suffer under as a young man. My mother didn't even ask whose fault it was. She didn't ask any questions about who was to blame. She didn't hear my side of the story about mom. I told him to back up and he didn't listen. This is his. She didn't ask any questions at all. She just ran right back into the house and called the ambulance. Now, of course, I, I say all of this in, in jest, right? She did exactly what she should have done, right? Because in that moment, Whose, whose fault it was and who was to blame, it just didn't matter that much, right? I mean, you could say, well, how, how could she not care enough to figure out whose fault? She did care. She cared about the things that, that, that really mattered. He's fine, by the way. Um, he's, he's running cameras for us this morning here at Trey. I was going to ask him to come up and we were going to kind of replay the whole event, but I figured he don't listen any better now than he did when we were kids. And it's been 30 plus years and we're still arguing about whose fault it was, right? We, we, like I still say he should have moved. He still says, well, you hit me in the face with a bat. I mean, I don't know who has the better argument. But what I do know is that who's to blame? Man, that day... When there was blood and ambulances and kids screaming and stitches, who's to blame? Just didn't, it, didn't matter, it didn't matter that much. But the truth is that for each and every one of us, 
we, we like to blame. We, we're like blame machines. We, it's, what we, it's what we do. When, when we're presented with some kind of difficult, maybe even a tragic situation like the story that I'm describing, we, we always want to know and we're always trying to assign even in our own heads who's responsible, who's, who's to blame for this. And I think, I think I've figured out why we like to, to, to know who's to blame. I think, I, I think I've, I've come to the, to the conclusion of why we do that, right? Because we all do it, don't we? When something goes wrong and, and fingers start getting pointed, we like, hey, not my fault. That's what we want, right? And here's what I came up with. And you can, if you're taking notes and you wanna write stuff down, here's what I came up with. There are few things more satisfying than a justified mistake. Think about it for a minute. Think, kind of walk through me in your head, just some, some instances and situations in your, in your life where something went wrong or a mistake was made. And then you start kind of tracing things back through the, the process. And then at some point you get back in, in the process and you realize somebody else did something that caused the mistake that you made. And all of a sudden you're like, whoo, isn't that like the greatest feeling in the world? Like here you are, you got all this guilt and all this like, oh no, I'm a, I don't know if you guys like hypercritical of yourselves like I am, but when I make a mistake, like I'm pretty hard on myself. And when, I, when I'm feeling pretty down on myself and pretty bad about the mistake that I've made, as I start walking back through the process, if I figure out that I wouldn't have made the mistake that I made if somebody else wouldn't have messed up before that, isn't that like a huge weight off of your shoulders, right? That there is something extremely satisfying about a justified mistake, to be able to say, well, I wouldn't have messed up if they didn't mess up. They're the ones to blame pressures off of me. Isn't that a satisfying thing? Do your heads like this? Y'all know what I'm talking about? You've been there, you know how that feels. The problem is, the problem is that for, for Christians, we take that same tendency, that same, that same propensity that we have to, to assign blame, to, to make us feel better about us, right? And go, go back to, to my story with the bat, right? Like I get to feel okay, not okay. I mean, it was still tragic that my brother got smacked in the face with a bat. Tragic thing happened. But the fact that it wasn't my fault, and it wasn't, the fact that it wasn't my fault somehow alleviates the guilt for me. And the problem for Christians is it will take the, the same mentality and this same desire that we have to assign blame so that the pressure's off of me and we apply it to sin. And now there's a lot of, of modern preachers and teachers in, in our day and age that like to, to make mistake and sin synonymous and they're not the same thing. All sins are a mistake, but all, but, but all mistakes are not sins. They're, they're, not, they're not the same thing. They, they differ, right? They differ in one very specific way. And where, trust, where Christians get in trouble is, is when we, we try to make the same kind of, of leap that we make when it comes to making a mistake that we do with sin. 
mistakes can be justified. I can justify a mistake. If somebody else, if somebody else did something that caused me to make a mistake, then, then, then I don't have to, then my mistake is justified. I'm justified in the mistake that I make. But here's a truth, and I want you to write this down as well. There's no such thing as a justified sin. You can justify a mistake. You can point to circumstances and situations. You said, I wouldn't have made the mistake if the circumstances or situation had been different. But there is no such thing as a justified sin. All sins are mistakes. That's true. When we sin, it's, it's a mistake. We've done something wrong. It's a mistake. But not all mistakes are sin. And so because that's true, I felt like we should probably define and clarify what sin, what was the difference, right, between just a mistake and a sin. So the, here's, here's my working definition. I didn't get this from anybody else. I came up with this. Hopefully you agree. Here's how I define sin. Sin is anything that offends God and hurts people. And sidebar, anything that hurts people offends God, by the way, if you didn't know that, because God loves people. So when we, when we hurt people, we can be, now, sometimes the gospel offends something that we believe and something that they believe when they don't align. And because we believe it, they're offended that we believe something. People can be offended, but they don't have to be hurt. If, if, we are, if we're causing hurt in the lives of other people, then that's sin. And so what I was saying a few minutes ago is, is here's what we like to do. We, we like to think the same way about our sin as we do about our mistakes. And we work to assign blame so that we can justify our sin. The problem is there's no such thing as a justified sin. As followers of Christ, we're called to, to stand out, to be different, to respond to difficult circumstances in a way that isn't sinful. We tracking? Let me give you a few examples to maybe, maybe help out. I wrote these in my notes to make sure I got them, I got them all. Here's, here's, here's a way that we tend to justify our anger, right? Well, I wouldn't lose my temper if they weren't so hard to get along with. See God, it's their fault that I lose my temper and fly off the rails and act out. Impatience. I wouldn't be impatient if they would just drive faster. If people would get out of my way, I wouldn't be impatient. Insubordination. Look, I do what my boss told me. I do what my parents told me to do. If they were better leaders and if they, did, if they knew as much about the situation as I did, if they were better at what they do, if they knew what they were talking about, man, I'd get in line and do whatever they tell me, but... God, it's their fault. Bitterness. Man, if you knew what they did to me, if you knew how bad they hurt me, you'd understand why I'm refusing to forgive them. You don't, you don't know. It's amazing to me the, how far we can go in justifying our sin by blaming somebody else. I wouldn't steal from the company if they paid me what I'm worth. How far can we go? We can always point the finger in an attempt to justify our sin as long as there's somebody else to blame. Jesus was hanging out with his disciples and it's, we're gonna look at a story that's recorded for us in, in John chapter nine. So if you have Bibles or a, a Bible on your phone and you wanna, wanna turn there, find that, we're gonna be in John chapter nine. And Jesus 
Jesus is going to give us another perspective, a whole different perspective. Like we, we, we've already established and, and defined that there's no such thing as a justified sin, that as followers of Christ, we're called to, to live uh, above reproach and to respond differently to situations, even never respond in sin, even if the situation is difficult. That's true of every believer everywhere. But Jesus, he's going to add another layer of why we shouldn't play the blame game. Because there's, there's, something, there's something else that's a, that's a possibility. And if we miss it, if we miss this possibility that Jesus is going to teach to his disciples and John's going to record for us and pass on to us so that we can learn from it as well. If we miss this, then it's possible that we'll miss some of the greatest opportunities and wondrous works of God in our lives. So let's read together in John chapter 9. The disciple is going to ask a question about blame and Jesus' response is, is so helpful and so wonderful. John chapter nine says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Whose fault is it? Who sinned, this man or his parents? You know, since he was born blind. And Jesus answered them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, it was the belief of the day that, that every, 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 uh, every suffering that took place, that every bad thing that happened, that every difficult circumstance that people found themselves in, that it was the direct result of some kind of sin. So that's, the, that's kind of the, the foundation for the question that they're asking. Like, hey, Jesus, because this man is suffering, because he's been blind, but he's been blind from birth. So we know that all suffering is related to a specific sin. So whose fault is it? Which, by the way, they're having this conversation in the presence of the dude, which is just, just seems a little bit incompassionate to me, right? Like they're looking at a blind dude like, hey, is this guy an awful person or were his parents awful people, right? Just a very lack of compassionate situation on the part of the disciples, but whatever, they were all jacked up. So we give them a little bit of grace, just like Jesus did, because we need it too. But anyway, so they're having this conversation. Like, hey, whose fault is it? And then I, I love... I love Jesus' response, and it's so significant. We can't miss this. We can't miss it. Jesus says, it's not his fault or his parents. The point Jesus is making is, is not that suffering didn't come into the world as a result of sin. It did. Genesis chapter 3, Romans chapter 8 make it really clear that there is suffering in the world because of sin, that we live in a world that is sinful and fallen. And because our world is fallen, that's why sin and su or sin is the cause of the suffering that is in the world. But what Jesus is also saying is that specific sin doesn't result in specific suffering. If there had never been any sin, there wouldn't be any suffering. And part of the meaning Part of the purpose of, of the physical horrors of suffering that we see in the world is to reveal the, the, the moral horror, horrors of, of sin. But that's, that's not what Jesus is doing. Suffering is a result of sin, but specific sins are not, not even usually. More often than not, specific sins do not cause specific suffering. And 
Now we need to get this. You need to understand this. God doesn't bring suffering into your life because of some sin that you committed. God, God doesn't work like that, right? Here, here's what Jesus is saying. Disease, sickness, death, childhood, diseases, all, all of these things that are awful and that are horrible things to witness and, and see and experience, all of those things are awful and they are in the world because of sin. But God doesn't give you cancer because you cheated on your taxes in 96. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's not a specific one-to-one, -one, like you're not suffering because of some specific sin that you committed. And that's what Jesus is trying to, and this is revolutionary thought for the disciples because in their mind, like if this dude is blind, somebody had to, had to cause that. And Jesus is like, no, not at all. Like he's suffering because there's sin in the world, but not because of some specific. They, they were looking for causation, for the cause. And Jesus points to purpose. Nothing caused this man's suffering, but there's still a purpose in his suffering. Come on, that's good stuff, somebody. This, Paul said the same thing, right? One of the most misused and misunderstood and misquoted verses in all of Scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I want to read it because here it actually applies. This is, the, this is the proper context for Romans 8, 28, where Paul said this. He said, we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to what? According to his purpose. What's Jesus pointing his disciples to in the, in the blindness of this man? He's pointing them to the purpose of his blindness, not the cause of it. There isn't a cause for it, but there is a purpose for it. And that's what Paul echoes in Romans 8, 28 as well, is that, that all of the suffering that we see in the world, it's the result of sin, not specific sin, not even, maybe not even your sin, sin in general, but none of it is without a purpose. That in every situation, difficult or great, there's an opportunity for God to be glorified. And as long as we're playing the blame game, we're going to miss it. As long as we're trying to figure out a way to justify the suffering because it's somebody else's fault and somebody else caused it. And if this wouldn't happen, if they wouldn't have and all that other kind of stuff. Jesus is correcting that theology in his disciples and I hope that I can correct it in us this morning as well. John Piper uh, I found some, some notes and commentary about this actual passage of scripture. He said this, this is a quote from him. It's kind of long, but we'll read it all. He says, suffering can only have ultimate meaning in relation to God. Jesus says that the purpose of the blindness is to put the work of God on display. That this means that for our suffering to have ultimate meaning, God must be supremely valuable to us. More valuable than health and life. Many things in the Bible make no sense until God becomes your supreme value. When it's Christ at the forefront, when it's Christ front and center, our suffering tends to make more sense because we understand that, that nothing happens outside of the sovereignty and designed will of God. And when we're exerting effort, trying to figure out whose fault it is, we, we run the risk of missing what God might be up to. 
So after Jesus tells his disciples that it's nobody's fault, he reveals the purpose in the man's blindness through a miracle. Verses six and seven, John nine, it says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. This is the gross part. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. It's interesting to me that Jesus sent him to a pool named Scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The purpose of God made manifest in the, in the miracle of restoring sight. This, this man's blindness serves a purpose and you're about to see it. And here it is that you might give glory to your father in heaven by watching me restore this man's sight. And then he sends him to the pool of Siloam. Um, now, this doesn't have any bearing on, on, the, on the, like the location of the pool, doesn't have any bearing on our, our time together today. But I just stood on the, on the brink or on the, the, the lip of the pool of Siloam. So I brought some pictures back from my trip from Israel. So this is where it is geographically located. That's the temple mount up at the front. You can kind of see the, the tunnel that comes down that feeds the pool. So that's where the pool is. This is it. They just uncovered this in 2004. They're still in the process. You can see the excavator in the back there. They just found this. They were, digging a, they were digging a sewer and found this whole area, which is the Pool of Siloam. And so for, for me, one of, the, one of the greatest things about my trip to Israel a couple of weeks ago was that now when I read the stories in the Bible, like I can see a physical place in my mind and it just, man, it just helps to authenticate like it wasn't already real for me anyway, but it just helps to authenticate the things that we read in scripture. Like Jesus says, hey dude, go to the pool of Siloam. That's an actual place. I, I walked up to it and looked at it, on it with my, with my own eyes and took a picture with my wonderful iPhone to bring back for the rest of you so you could see it too. Because, because it's real and, it's, and it happened. And so Jesus sends, again, has no bear. Like the, the, the picture of that place has nothing to do with what I'm talking to you about. I just wanted you to see it. To maybe strengthen your faith like it strengthened mine. That these places that we read about in Scripture, man, you, can, you can walk on them. And you can see them. They found it by accident. They were going to put in a sewer in 2004. And they found it. And they're like, oh, this is the Pool of Siloam. Imagine that. We found something that the Bible says was a place. Every situation that you're going to find yourself in, there's an opportunity for God to receive glory from it. But if you want to play the blame game, if you want to find yourself in a tough spot and try to figure out who caused this, is God mad at me? because of some sin in my past and that's why I'm suffering now, Jesus said, that's not how it works. That's not how God functions. God isn't punishing you for your sin. Now, Grant, sometimes, listen, look at me, look at me. Sometimes when you sin, when you do dumb stuff, you pay the consequences for dumb stuff, right? We call it the dumb tax. Uh, you do dumb stuff, you pay the dumb tax. That happens. Sometimes sin has consequences. That's true. 
Sometimes the situation you find yourself in is the result of some dumb thing that you did. But God doesn't levy punishment unrelated to the, to the, to the consequences of that specific sin. Specific sins do not cause specific suffering. There is suffering because there's sin. But it's not always one-to-one specific sin to suffering ratio. Does that make sense? But as long as you're trying to play the blame game in any situation, whether you're trying to find fault in your own life or whether you're trying to point at somebody else and say it's their fault or whether you're trying to point at God and say it's his fault. If you're playing the blame game in any situation, good, bad, or indifferent, then you have the opportunity to miss what God is doing. And this will be kind of the closing thought to frame the rest of our time. Who's to blame is far less important than what's God doing. Whose fault is it is not nearly as important as what is God up to. Let me ask you a few questions. Are we not most like Jesus when we forgive someone instead of justifying our disgust for them because it was their fault? Think about this for a minute. You're you're completely in the right. They are completely in the wrong. You have every reason in the world to discard, do away with, mistreat, treat poorly, be mean to, whatever term you wanna use. But if you choose as an act of grace and an extension of mercy, are you not most like your savior Jesus in that moment? But if you assign blame and say, well, it's their fault, get what they deserve. Man, I'm glad God didn't think about us that way. And we didn't get what we deserved. Instead, we got Jesus and we got forgiveness while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Are we not honoring God when we choose to take responsibility for our role in our own suffering or that of someone else? If we, if we cause suffering in the, in the life of somebody else through sin or mistake or whatever it is, Is it not honoring to God in that moment for us to to own the responsibility that we have to, to take our slice of the blame? Sure it is. And it goes a long way in restoring relationships. Man, there are some powerful, powerful, powerful words that help to restore a lot of relationships. And here they are. I'm sorry. It's my fault. I hope you'll forgive me. I'll never let it happen again. It's powerful. It's humbling. We talked about humility last week. We humble ourselves. It restores relationships. And for a moment, if I could ask you, you Christians in the room and watching along with us at home, to take your mind's eye to the cross, to Christ on the cross, and ask the same question that disciples asked about the blind man. Whose fault is it? Why is he there? Why is he suffering? Who sinned? It wasn't him. It was us. It was our sin that produced or caused his 
suffering. But his suffering revealed and produced the glory of God. It's through his sacrifice that we are restored and renewed and redeemed. Would we be so bold as to ask God that our suffering would do the same thing? That our inconvenience, that our frustration, that our impatience, or at least the cause for our impatience, would somehow bring about the glory of God. The reality is that it never will as long as we continue to to play the blame game, try to figure out who's at fault so that we can justify our own mistakes or even worse, attempt to justify our sin. Let's stop blaming and start trying to figure out what it is that God is seeking to accomplish through our difficult circumstances. And can you imagine how this is gonna benefit and impact our relationships? If we get this right, how, how many relationships could be restored if we can figure out how to, how to walk this out, stop playing the blame game, stop trying to justify what, our misbehavior because of somebody else's shortcomings? Let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful that you didn't behave toward us like we are so prone to behave toward others. That God, in our sin and in our shame and in our guilt and in our falling short, God, you chose to move in our direction, to forgive, to restore, So, Father, I'm asking now that you would help us as your followers, as your children, to do the same. God, instead of trying to to, to justify our disgust, to justify our apathy, to justify our mistreatment, to justify our holding at arm's length, those that you bring in to our lives, that God, you would help us to respond more in the same way that you responded to us when we were to blame. God, you you offered us the most precious gift in the form of your son, Jesus, that we who were imperfect might then have an opportunity to have a relationship with you who is perfect. God, I pray that we never take that for granted. I pray that it informs how we live and it informs how we interact with the people around us. God, would you help us to stop asking the question, who's to blame? And start trying to figure out the answer to what's God up to. Father, we love you. We thank you for the the hope the forgiveness, the grace, mercy, and joy that have been extended to us through the sacrifice of your son, Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.